Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I am the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hey guys, welcome to this edition of the Once Bitten podcast. Joining me on this show is Sam Callahan, who is earning his living over in the US of A with swanbitcoin.com. Yes, that good old brilliant Bitcoin company that we have all known to come and love. And you're very lucky if you're in the States because you can DCA with Swan. And if you use swanbitcoin.com forward slash bitten, you will be kicked off with a free $10. Now, I wanted to get Sam on the show because I tuned in to one of Stefan Levera's recent podcasts where they went through Sam's very close look at the BIS, the Bank of International Settlements. And then Sam went and did the same with the IMF and he dropped a fire thread about the IMF and what they're thinking about with cryptocurrencies, CBDCs, etc, etc. So that's what this show is about. We're going to go under the hood. He went behind them in enemy lines to figure out what they are up to. I hope you find this one very interesting. We talk a lot about John Perkins' book, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, which is very relevant as well to this discussion and Sam's insights. Sit back, enjoy, and listen, and prepare to get triggered about what these big institutions do and what they are up to and what they uh, want to achieve. Anyway, before we do get into the show, I've already sh- I've already shilled Swan. I mean, reshill Swan, should I? Swanbitcoin.com forward slash bitten, no need. Relay.ch forward slash bitten. They are the Swan equivalent across Europe. It's R-E-L-A-I. And again, please check out the show notes because all the links are there. Just click them, go through, apply the codes where needed, and uh, you will be uh, unlocking some goodies with these Bitcoin-only companies that are there to help you. Make sure you stack safely, though. Use the BitBox02 hardware wallet. That is shiftcrypto.ch forward slash bitten. This is a Bitcoin-only hardware wallet, which will keep your Bitcoin safe. Coin Corner. We've got a show coming up with Danny Scott. You're going to love it. They've just released the bolt card. It's amazing. Coincorner.com forward slash bitten should be up and running. If not, hit the link in the show notes. That unlocks a free 10 pounds or 10 euros worth of Bitcoin on your first purchase. Set up your DCA service with them as well. It's very easy. Bitcoin Reserve have you covered for, you know, some larger amounts if needed. They will give you a white glove service for all of your Michael Saylor type friends that want to hoon in with 50 grand minimum. But they can also help you out up to a thousand pounds a day on your card. Only company I know that is able to do that. Check them out, bitcoinreserve.com forward slash bitten. There's conferences coming up. Check them out. There's one in Riga coming up, the Honey Badger Conference. I'm going to be there hosting a special interview. I look forward to meeting anybody that can make it across Liberty in our lifetime in Prague, 21st, 23rd of October. Make sure you check them out. Use code PRINCY for a discount. BitcoinDay.io are doing meetups across the US every month. 
Make sure you also check out pleb initiatives such as Consensus Network by books in many different languages and Ungovernable Misfits who are going to get you the best merch. Enjoy this show with Sam. All right, guys, we're here with Sam Callahan from Swan Bitcoin. How you doing, man? Good. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for waiting around. Sorry, we're running a, a little bit behind schedule, but uh, we ran out uh, at the uh, the last minute for for a quick bite to eat, which is very unlike us. Uh, probably because we were two kids down tonight, so it's like, yeah, it's going to be a lot cheaper if we just run out and get a, a quick bite to eat. So it's a nice little treat. There you go. Yeah. There you go. But a lot of tourists in town, so we got held up a bit. Hey, that's all right. You guys have a good uh, dinner or lunch? What, what time is it there? It's dinner. Yeah, it's dinner. It's just gone dinner. there at 9 Yeah, that's right. <clears throat> oh, right on. Yeah, that's some good, good Indian food, which is hard to find in, in France. Uh, so we're, we're good. Yeah. Uh, and, and during the dinner, uh, we got to talking about how Lauren wasn't around and how the hell could the podcast ever go ahead without Lauren here to ask the first question? Yeah, yeah. So we, we have a stand-in. Yeah. Okay. So you got you a question? Introduce yourself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm Sophia. Um, Hi, Lauren's Sophia. One of Lauren's older sisters. Yeah. yeah. Second, okay. Second oldest. Um, so my know. question is, um, what is, what is IMF? Yes. The IMF. Oh wow. Uh, <laughs> that is the International Monetary Fund. Okay. So they're kind of a international organization that was created in the 1940s. And what they do nowadays is when a country's having a hard time and they're going through a crisis, um, they can, they come in and give them money. So they give them loans. Um, just like if somebody was struggling, just a person and they needed some money from a bank, um, to pay for some medical bills or something, they take out a personal loan and then they pay for their medical bills. The uh, IMF does that for countries. So when a country's having a hard time, uh, they run to the IMF and the IMF gives them a loan uh, to kind of get them through those tough times. And so that's uh, on the surface, that's what they do. On the surface, that's what they do. <laughs> <laughs> do you want to tell Sophia the, uh, the, the hidden truths that you, you've been uncovering? Yeah, so... Uh, the IMF likes to act like the good guy, like they're the firefighters that are coming in to save the day. Um, but a lot of times what they do is they, they have uh, terms and conditions with the loans. So they, when they give these countries loans, they say, hold on, we'll give you the money that you desperately need, uh, but we need you to do these things for us. And usually those things are not um, advantageous for that country. They actually help either foreign corporations or their own um, needs. So they basically hold the money over their head and say, oh, you can do this, but we need you to do these things for us, right? And then usually what they ask them to do actually harms the country long-term. So um, even though they act like they're saving grace for these countries, they actually put them into a lot of more problems long-term because they have a bunch of debt that they have to pay back. And then they have to do these, uh, basically these terms and conditions that come with the loans actually hurt the country. So there's a little bit of nuance to all this. Hmm. You see, 
They pretend to be the good guys, but really they're the bad guys. Yeah. Yeah. You always got to dig deeper, Sophia. They're, they're, they're actually indebting countries. That, so countries are begging for money and help. And then the IMF ride in on their great big white horse and indebt them even further and completely consign them to you know, a lifetime of poverty. Yeah. That's something to it's think heavy. about. Bitcoin <laughs> fixes this though, Sophia. Yes. How yeah. might Bitcoin fix this? Um, I don't know. How might it fix it? Sam can tell you. <laughs> yeah. So, well, before Bitcoin, they were the only bank in town, right? They were the only people that these uh, countries could go to when they're having a hard time. So there's no other option, even though that, like we just said, they actually created more harm than good over the long term. But now Bitcoin's here. So these countries can uh, turn to Bitcoin, an open monetary network, um, where we're starting to see uh, like the ability to raise money, uh, just like the IMF does for these countries, except with Bitcoin, you know, there's no stipulations, there's no terms and conditions like the IMF, and the countries can use the money however they see fit, and it's a lot more uh, free, so they could they can maintain their own independence. Whereas if they go to the IMF, they have to listen to what they say. So that's how Bitcoin's kind of changing the game because now there's another option in town. It's not just the IMF. So uh, yeah, it's kind of a big deal. Yeah. Wow. Okay. All right. Do you have any further questions? I don't think so. Okay. I'll uh, I'll think about that one um, before I go to sleep tonight. Mm-hmm. I'll end up not <laughs> sleeping. But <laughs> no, if you th- if you dream about Bitcoin, you'll sleep very soundly. If you think about the yeah. criminality of the IMF and what they've done and the, the damage that they've wreaked across the world, then yeah, you'll have a pretty rough night. Yeah. 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 All right, do you want to say goodnight to Sam? Yeah. Uh, I'm going to go. So good night. Yeah, good night. Nice Hope to meet you. Hope you have a, a nice rest of your day. Nice Thank you. You. <laughs> you too. Have Bye. a good sleep. Cheers, Sam. Um, Cheers. For, for new listeners, uh, yeah, the, uh, one of my kids generally asks the first question on the, the podcast, if you're wondering what that was all about. But, uh, and it's usually Lauren, my youngest daughter, but she's, uh, she's not around today. So, mate, like, you, you thundered onto the scene with these fire threads of yours, which have been really educational to a lot of people, uh, very helpful. But let's find out where you came from. Like, what what's uh what were you doing before before you uh landed a gig at swan yeah well i I definitely have a little bit of different background i was actually a uh sports physical therapist or a physio i think what you guys call them out there Mm -hmm. so i worked with professional athletes and um i was a director of rehabilitation for a hospital um because i was really interested in in biology and physics that's what i studied at in school. Um, but I also studied business and, um, was always interested in markets. And so once I discovered Bitcoin in, in 2017, I really fell down the rabbit hole because I'd already studied financial history and and central banking and the global financial crisis and these large organizations like the IMF. And, um, when I found Bitcoin, I immediately knew that 
it could take power away from them, which really excited me. And, and it could serve as a solution to some of these issues. And so when I found it, I, it really clicked pretty fast for me because I understood the problem. And then two years later, I mean, I just knew that I had to switch careers and, and be a part of this because, um, you know, I wanted to look back when I was older and just say that, you know, I helped in some small way um, to bring about the adoption of uh, freedom money. And, and that's how, kind of how I see it. So um, that's kind of my background. It's a little different than probably a lot of people who come from finance and stuff because I worked in healthcare. So. so is that all done now? You've completely moved away from that? You've done a total U-turn on, on your whole kind of planned life? Yeah, it was. It was a big change. It was, um, uh, yeah, but I don't, I don't work at all in it. I just focus 100% at Swan now. They keep me busy, you know? Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I do 100% Bitcoin now. I still have my license. So one day I might go back to that because I do enjoy, uh, you know, helping people. And um, it was rewarding and valuable, um, uh, rewarding profession. And uh, one day I might go back to it. But right now, you know, I got bigger fish to fry. So I'm working in, in Bitcoin. I felt like I could help more people by educating them about Bitcoin and, preserving their wealth instead of preserving their health, I guess is how I like to say it. Nice. Catchy. So were you working with uh, pro athletes or were you working with a, a whole bunch of different people? Uh, yeah. If we want to get into like, so I was working with all levels of athletes, um, the professional athletes that I worked with, um, I was more of like a consultant. So I'd, I'd fly in uh, preseason and then, uh, basically like when you think about injuries of ACL injuries and some of these really bad ones, mm -hmm. they happen non-contact. So you're cutting and then your knee just kind of gives out. Um, and so kind of worked with like an algorithm to try to determine if, if athletes were more likely to suffer those really debilitating injuries than other athletes. So looking at how they move and doing a lot of testing in the preseason. So I would fly into different professional organizations, uh, test them, uh, run them through the algorithm uh, kind of, uh, categorize their risk levels and then work to kind of improve them so that they don't suffer those really bad ones. Cause if you think about like a professional sports team, losing their star athlete to injury is pretty much their number one thing they want to avoid both mm -hmm. from a performance standpoint on the field, as well as money fill seats. When your star player goes down, uh, it hurts the entire organization. So, uh, trying to shift it from being reactive, like healthcare being reactive to to proactive trying to prevent these things from happening in the first place. So that was my role working with, with pro athletes and it was pretty cool. Um, but then I found Bitcoin and that was a lot cooler. <laughs> <laughs> How long were you doing that? You, you seem pretty young to me, like, but it sounds like you've had uh, a fair few years doing that before you. Yeah, I, I was doing it for five years. So um, uh, I think I might be a little older than you think, but uh, yeah, I was, I was doing that for five yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was doing that for five years and then, um, and then Bitcoin came around. Like that's pretty much it. Like I, I started writing about Bitcoin and just became completely obsessed. And I knew that I had to switch careers, which, which is a difficult decision to make when you have a lot of sunk costs. Like I went through a lot of school mm -hmm. to get to where I was and a lot of time and effort, a lot of money. And, um, you know, when I just decided to change careers because it's all I thought about all the time. It's what I wanted to read about. Um, and I just felt it was almost a disservice to, to myself and also my patients because I would be with my patients and, 
and I wouldn't be thinking about them. I would be thinking about who knows what, like whatever was going on with Bitcoin or, or the IMF or whatever I was thinking about it, but it wasn't there right in front of them. So that's when I really knew that I had to, to make a change and, um, you know, really thankful for Swan for, for giving me a shot. So many plebs are in that position. So they're going to want to know how you did it. Like what were the steps that you put in place to try and free yourself from what most people would, you know, term a fiat job and get yourself yeah. a, a Bitcoin job? What, how, how did that process, first of all, there must've been a lot of sleepless nights. You know, the sunk cost fallacy is real. This is not something to be taken lightly and you've got to work your way through that somehow, uh, you know, with, with a partner or yourself, depending on your situation, but certainly in your mind and then with your family as well, right? That these, the, these are big decisions and you're going to get a lot of pushback in places. How, how was this for you? Yeah, well, man, got me reflecting now. Like it was, it was hard because I knew in my heart that I belonged in Bitcoin and I, and it was a, it was a kind of a giant leap to make from healthcare to Bitcoin. It wasn't as easy as like working at a bank and having some experience on paper that translated. Um, but I think the one thing that I'd say is like proof of work is a big deal where like, don't just write in an email saying like, I'm passionate. I will do these things. I will do these things. You know, I started writing and it, it's more powerful when you reach out, when you have even something, if it's a blog post that nobody's seen before, um, or if it's tweets or anything like that, um, it's something where the your future potential employer can look at you and be like, okay, I can kind of get a sense of how this guy thinks. And maybe that gets you an interview, but it's a lot more powerful than just saying things. And so that's one thing, I, a tip that I would give to people is just start putting out work. Like, even if you don't think anybody's going to see it, because part of the reason why I got this job was, was my tweets, which I didn't have a ton of followers at the time. But when I reached out, I think, you know, Reed, Reed Womack or somebody went through my tweets and it was like, okay, this guy is a Bitcoiner. And so I'm going to give him a shot at an interview. So that was kind of a big deal. And then when, when I'm talking about changing careers to, you know, partners or family, like I'm very lucky that I've really supportive uh, like mom and dad and stuff who, who kind of listened to what I said. They didn't understand it. Um, they were kind of worried about me, like changing everything with all of a sudden cost. Um, but they were like, Hey, if you know what you want to do and, and you want to do this, then, then we support you hundred percent. So, you know, I'm really blessed to have that in my life where it wasn't a lot of pushback in terms of like, what are you doing? There was a lot of misunderstanding, but now they get it. Like now they, they understand why I was going to do it. Um, but it's, it's not an easy thing to do. And I, I am sympathetic to people who feel like they're stuck. Um, but just know that there's a lot of translation between jobs that don't show up on paper. Like my my job as a sports physical therapist makes me uh, like, it helps me every single day at Swan because um, when you're, when you're in that position, you have to teach uh, patients very complicated anatomy and physiology and complex topics. And you have to learn communication really, really well. And that helps me so much more in my role at Bitcoin. Same thing. I'm sharing things. So there's, there's soft skills that translate over to other jobs that I, I don't think people consider. And, and so when, if you're a person that wants to get into Bitcoin, just know that you probably have skills that translate over, but you have to show that and you have to somehow get that message across um, because they might not be obvious uh, on a resume or something, if that makes sense. 
It totally does. And so many people are kind of like stuck like a rabbit in the headlights thinking, well, there's absolutely no way I can escape my fiat job because I'm not a coder. I'm not a developer. I'm not a software engineer and all of this kind of stuff. And here you are. You're a sports therapist who's made the uh, physiotherapist who's made the jump. Like, uh, So if anybody is sitting there listening to this right now and you're you know, someone in a sales role, and most people are in sales roles because you know, customer support is a sales role. Companies, Bitcoin companies need these kind of people. It is not, it's not yeah. just like coders or anything like that. So what's your what's your role there? What what are you doing at Swan? Well, this is one other thing I said I would say is um if, if you have a fiat job and you know you make decent money, you know, be prepared to take a little bit of a pay cut when you first start. I mean, you have to kind of reinvent yourself. So I started in client services, took a pay cut to do that to just get my foot in the door in the industry. But these these startups are so fast moving and then you'll literally wear multiple hats within three weeks of and have different roles and get experience. You know, I basically carved out a role as an analyst at Swan over time. Once they started to trust me that I knew what I was talking about and I could write and things like that, you know, and then you, you get promoted and, and it happens really fast because these startups are moving so fast. So your one goal should be, especially if you're non-technical, should just be to get your foot in the door and just know that that role is not permanent by any means. If anything, it's, it's, it'll, it'll, you'll be doing something different in like a month uh, from the role that you get a job in. So I think that's like a really important thing to think about. Um, and um, kind of lost my train of thought, but that, <laughs> that's one thing that I would say. No, it's uh, it, it's so true. Go ahead. No, I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, right. Yeah, I was gonna say. Yeah, it's it's so true. It's just um, having the um, it's pulling it's pulling the ripcord, right? Ripping off the band aid and going for it. Uh, a lot of people uh, are sitting there on the edge of their seat, just so bored and fed up <clears throat> of the hamster wheel, the the corner they've painted themselves into. Uh, their fiat roles and they just want to get out and add something to this space you know what yeah this incredible time yeah i think you have to be motivated in the right way too like if you're doing this for like money or or fame or something like bitcoin fame like you won't you're not going to make it like you'll get burnt out or um that's not really what they're looking for. You got to be on the mission. Like, like I'm here to disrupt central banks and separate money and state. And that's what drives me every day. And, uh, you know, be prepared to really build if you want to work in this industry. It's, it's like, it's really easy to just throw tweets out on, twi- on Twitter and, and, you know, it's great. Like do the club life. Like I'm not knocking anything, but like, if you actually want to build, there's a reason why it's called building because it's, it's hard work. And so you have to be driven by the right uh, things inside um, if you're really going to take that step to change careers. Because like you said, it's not, a, it's not a small decision to make. And so you have to make sure that your passions are you know, in the right place and, and that you're aligned um, before you make that decision. And that's just something to think about. So I wanted to dig into, this is why Sophia asked the IMF question at the beginning. Uh, you know, it was, a, it was a short, thinner conversation. Well, who's going to come on and ask the first question of Sam this evening when we get back home? Uh, and, uh, you know, Sophia kind of put her hand up and, right, okay, well, what's the IMF? So I don't know, what's the IMF? Well, there's your first question. <laughs> so we're good. Is that, what, what spurred that 
specific article or thread was that something you guys were kicking about in-house at swan was there an announcement from the imf was this just something you said this is bullshit i've got to just do this out off the uh you know off, off my own back i just got to get this this out there and this information how did how did that one come about um well that, that's actually just that was just me um wasn't through swan now i work for swan and they support uh, me they let me do this stuff so that's great because <laughs> <laughs> i think if i worked for a bank traditional bank i would i would be long gone by now uh but swan like encourages me to write this stuff uh, but this was on my free time and i actually mm -hmm. I, like i said i'd studied central banking and these international financial institutions before i discovered bitcoin and when I studied them initially, it was kind of depressing because I, I thought they were all too powerful. I thought they've grown too big. Um, it captured uh, the governments and, and the regulators, and there was really nothing to stop them. And so it was kind of depressing to read into the um, kind of their organizations. Uh, but then I found Bitcoin and I, and I was like, wow, this is, this is it. This, this is their Achilles heel or whatever, and, and can bring these people down. And um, you know, there's a lot of talk about other cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin and all these things, but I don't really see them as the enemies or really threats. Um, the real enemies are central bankers, central banks, and these financial institutions um, that really control a lot of the money um, and, and a lot of the policy decisions. And so that's where my focus lies. And, and I don't really care about these other cryptocurrencies that much because they're just kind of silly copycat things that aren't actual threats to Bitcoin. Um, and so I think more attention should be made to these organizations. And if I could educate people on what they're doing and what they are and where they came from, then I could maybe um, you know add a little value to the community that way. And so the threat really just came, or the threat just came from that. And um, as well as they kind of post all their plans out into the open. <laughs> and so when you go through it, it's like, all right, like this isn't just Bitcoiners being crazy paranoid or anything. Look at what they're saying. And, and I think that's really powerful to, to use their own publications against them and their own data against them and just uh, kind of display it in a way that's educational and objective. And then people could come to their own conclusions from them. So I, I, I always post the actual sources in those threads because I want people to go in them there themselves and read them and, and make up their own decisions. And then I think what they'll find is that there's a lot of truth in what Bitcoiners are saying. And so that was kind of my uh, motivation to write it. Yeah. And, and you put it out there. I've been behind enemy lines reading everything the IMF has put out in the last two years. That is some deep stuff, man. Like, yeah. Uh, so, and then you just pull out like um, little parts of it uh, and we'll just scroll through and we'll pick a few. Um, let's start with the IMF's note titled blockchain consensus mechanism, a primer for supervisors. You know, it might have well been titled slander proof of work and promote proof of stake. So what were you finding there when you were digging in and, and trying to find any kind of mention of proof of work? How do you do that? Do you just like control F for anything? The IMF, like looking for POW and trying to you know figure out what they've written. Is there any trick to your, your, your investigative powers? Well, actually I just, I just search by date and I mean, it's tedious. So I, I, I just <laughs> go through every single thing that they've written in the last you know two years or something. 
and um, I think it was like 60 something working papers and other things. And um, if I see something that could be related to Bitcoin, I just click on it and I uh, kind of browse through it. And then if it's something where I think it's actually interesting, I'll just read the whole thing. Like I'll actually read it. Um, so it takes a little time, but I, I just like to be thorough because I don't really like to leave a, a stone unturned when I, when I post something. That's kind of my biggest fear is that I'll post something and then somebody will post something that I miss uh, underneath or something. Um, so it's slower that way, but it, I think it's better. Um, and, you know, for this specific piece, yeah, so it was about blockchain consensus mechanisms. It was basically comparing the different consensus mechanisms. And the proof of work section is just so negatively toned. It's if you're just looking at it from more just how it feels when you're reading it, uh, the proof of work section is, is so um, scary sounding, right? And then they talk about all these problems in proof of work that aren't necessarily true. And so it's kind of uh, disingenuous, I would say, that part of it. And they talk about the energy uh, consumption, but they always uh, cite the same flawed debunked studies uh, from Alex DeVry, which is the Digiconomist, which is the dishonest, you know, Dutch central banker who has flawed methodologies for estimating Bitcoin's uh, footprint. And there's been a lot of work um, that dug into that from Nick Carter, as well as Ben from BitFarms has wrote a lot of pieces about why it's completely bunk what his, his studies are. But it's always cited by these, these financial institutions. It's always cited. And so that's the same thing in this, this piece was proof of work is slandered and then it's using the flawed studies to slander it, uh, to kind of over-exaggerate its, its carbon footprint. And then uh, on top of that, the proof of stake sections are very, I would say, favorable. They're, they're talking about how transaction speeds are better and how there's no energy. And so all these things are great. Um, a greater decentralization, they make that... Uh, that they lie that's basically say that they're more secure more decentralized um and i would just say the whole thing's kind of disingenuous and you have to think why is the imf uh talking down proof of work and talking up proof of stake i think that's what questions should come across a lot of people's mind of even if they believe in some of these proof of stake coins they're like why does the imf love my proof of stake coin that's what i would be asking well he you point out in, in part of the thread uh, that the kind of things that they're saying, uh, they say uh, proof of work is prone to centralization because of mining pools, which you point out is false. Uh, forks make achieving settlement finality, um, achieving uh, finality of settlement hard, which again, you point out is false. Uh, and then proof of work's decentralization makes it more difficult to regulate. You're like, Yes, it does, motherfucker. Yes, it yeah. does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you got that one, right? <laughs> so, like, you know, it's all out there. They know. And so it, that, that admission alone, that they know that it's more difficult to regulate if it's decentralized, makes it, of course, they're going to shill proof of stake. Yep. That's right. And now it's, it's all about control and when it comes down to it, and that's kind of like the end of my thread but you know they they act like they care about the energy consumption and and they i think the next piece is like uh, some chart citing the same flawed study that i just mentioned called like the energy guzzler like all this scary language yes. right they always 
And um, it's based off those flawed studies first off, but it's really like they're trying to use um, ESG and, and their, their love for the environment, the IMF <laughs> um, to talk yeah. down proof of work. But, but in reality, it's about control, right? It's about the fact that they, they can't regulate it as easily and they, they can't have any control over the protocol. And um, it's very clear, I think, through when you look through this stuff, that that's the case. And um, I think it's it's really about what the IMF's goals are. I think it really shows shines a light on that because you know some people think that the IMF's starting to warm up to uh, Bitcoin or some. I've seen some of that stuff, and I was like, no, 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 no. Like you haven't studied mm. the IMF enough if you think that. Like they're not your friends. They're not Bitcoin's friends. And the reason this one spoke to me, uh, resonated with me, was because I, like I mentioned in our DMs, I was listening. I was listening to John Perkins' book, uh, "The New Confessions of an Economic Hitman," and he has a lot to say about uh, the IMF, obviously. Um, yeah. And yeah. All right. Case in point, like you just said it. Yeah, like the IMF actually care about the environment. Do they fuck? You know, they <laughs> if a third world country, in their terms, air quotes. Uh, is coming to them saying we need to build a coal plant and we need 30 million, 300 million, 400 million, whatever it is to, to build this. Then the first thing they're going to do is like, yeah, sure. Here's the cash. They're not going to turn around and say, oh, no, 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 no. Coal's bad for the environment. You need to put up uh, wind or solar. But they're just going to absolutely write the check, get it done, get it out there, go chop down as many trees, go and ruin as many freaking natural parks or whatever it is that you need to do but here's the loan and that's what people don't yeah. understand yeah i know and and they'll over exaggerate it right they'll they'll say hey that coal plant's gonna bring in x gdp mm -hmm. but they'll over exact the other economists over exaggerate it so that the country takes on more debt and becomes more uh enslaved to them essentially right because yep. their programs never return the gdp that they their economists promise and then the, all that's left is a huge debt burden for them. Um, you know, and it reminds me of landscapes and and ruin landscape. It reminds me yeah. of, uh, I think in that book, I can't remember. I think it's Ecuador, maybe. Uh, but there's a there's a guy who who runs there. I think his name was Jaime uh, Roldos, I think. But he yes. comes to power in like the '70s, and he would not allow these major oil companies to come in. Uh, because they would cause damage to their environment, right? And he stood up to the IMF and he refused to do these programs. Um, and then he ended up dying, <laughs> right? So he ended up mysteriously dying. And then in a mysterious behold, plane crash. In a mysterious plane crash. And then lo and behold, uh, you know, a few you know, years later, uh, the oil companies did come in and destroy the environment, right? Yep. Uh, so- that's a perfect example of how and then the, the same thing happened <laughs> they don't yeah. and then the same thing happened to the um the guy that was running panama his name escapes me at the moment but he was standing up uh for the rights of that you know, panama wanted the rights over the panama canal right uh if i remember right yeah torrios right uh, omar torrios yeah so yeah i found that that part of the book just really stuck in my head those two young charismatic leaders who grew up poor and there's a lot of similarities here between Bukele um, who yes. grew up poor, very charismatic for, for the people 
or at least that's the platform, right? And a lot, they were beloved by the people and they stood up to the IMF um, to maintain their sovereignty to, to, and they specifically talk about that. And then both of those guys died in plane crashes mm-hmm. within months of each other, I believe. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that was really um, cir- circumspect. Like it was just like, how can you, and then, and then both of the things that they opposed uh, with the IMF came true once the next leader came into power. Like, so everything that they were trying to fight for eventually fell to the wayside and the IMF won, so to speak, um, in, in Panama and in Ecuador. And so that, that, that part of the book just really left an impression on me. Same here, man. I, I can't stop thinking about it. And you brought up Bukele as well. And I was so uh, happy to see the other day when he was tweeting that there were 44 other world leaders in, um, in El Salvador there to talk about and learn about and educate themselves about the possibility of adopting Bitcoin widely in their nations. Because standing alone like that against these people, and especially, especially if your country's currency is the U.S. dollar, mm-hmm. you've got you've got double trouble right there. You know, it's not just the IMF that are coming after you; it's the CIA and uh, you know special interest exactly. groups in the U.S. Exactly, and, and that's why I just no matter what you think about Bukele, like he's a complex figure, and and I understand why some people are a little bit like turned off by some of the things he says or has done but you have to applaud his bravery for standing up to these large organizations and trying to take back the rights of his country. I mean, I don't know how you can not respect that. Um, And especially when you understand the history, like we just talked about of other leaders in Central and South America who have done that in the past and what's happened to them. Um, And so I really, like you said, the, the meeting a couple of weeks ago, um, it made me really happy because, and it probably scared the shit out of the IMF because this is what they're scared of. They're scared of the next country doing it. Who's bigger than El Salvador and then the next country and then the next country. Um, and, and that meeting had to freak them out a little bit. And it's just crazy because um, also with the IMF, so the U S has the most voting power uh, and they're the only ones with veto power. And it's interesting because in February, uh, there's a bill by the senators uh, in the U.S. Senate called the ACES bill, which was uh, the accountability for cryptocurrency in El Salvador. Basically, they wanted uh, to mitigate the risks of adoption. These senators somehow wanted to monitor El Salvador like like that's any part of their business for some other sovereign nation to tell them what to do. And I just thought it was really interesting because like IMF has a problem with it. Suddenly, U.S. senators care about El Salvador and then a bill's going through to help monitor them. Like these things aren't coincidence and they're, mm-hmm. they're connected. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it just goes to show like how the IMF is also not this uh, neutral organization. It's actually very, very biased and, and pushes Western policies on other nations. And that's been its history. That's why it always has a Euro leader since its start, always a European leader. Um, and then the, what I just talked about with the veto rights of America, only country that has veto rights. So anything that happens in the IMF, uh, any plans really comes from, from America, comes from uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, so when Bukele stands up to these people, he's kind of standing up to Washington, D.C. when it comes down to it. 
Hmm. And let's talk about their past leaders. Yes, one of them, even a convicted felon that's now head of the European Central Bank. Christine Lagarde. Yeah, so, <laughs> so I've actually looked into the last three IMF managing directors okay. are criminals. So that's, yeah, Dr- Christine- that's, that's Draghi, Lagarde, and one other? Is that right? There's, there's uh, not the ECB, the IMF. Oh, IMF. Sorry. Okay, sorry. Go for yeah, it. yeah, because... Yeah, yeah. So um, that's Lagarde, Roto, and then DSK, which I can't remember exactly what it is. It's something. Oh, Kahn. God. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. Strauss Kahn, Dominic Strauss Kahn. Yep. All three of them have been uh, had criminal activity. And mm-hmm. so when they say that Bitcoin's used by criminals, I literally just have to laugh because I'm like, you guys all are actually criminals. Like, literally. Um, and Strauss so, Kahn yeah. was like, um, <laughs> He was up for like raping a chambermaid or something that was cleaning his hotel bedroom. Just just one of the yeah. things. Or that's the just thing. One that of they, the things. Or that's the scandal that they laid on him to get him fired. You know, like I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. There's some there's some there's a Netflix documentary about that um, that I saw like years ago. But it was some like sexual assault case of a maid, and there's a lot of uh, conspiracies around that. But then he actually got charged again for some kind of prostitution thing in in europe somewhere i think in france actually Mm -hmm. um and and but the funny part is all they never serve anything they always get away with it because they're so well connected um none of them serve jail time uh christine lagarde was convicted but then nothing happened and she just went back to her job uh so it's 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 one of those examples (laughs) she 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 got a better (laughs) job (laughs) she got promoted that's That's the fiat. That's the fiat world, right? Like you can almost mess up, and there's no accountability. You just you kind of just and move the, on. The, up. the best thing it's is, like- <laughs> she she was convicted, i.e., found guilty in the court of law for embezzling, i.e., money laundering, aiding and abetting the the embezzlement of like 450 million euros to one of Sarkozy's aides or something. I can't remember exactly who it was. Um, she was facing 18 months in prison and I don't know, anywhere between, I don't know, pick a number, say tens of thousands of pounds or euros fine. If found guilty, found guilty, no time served, no penalty, brand new job as head of the ECB. <laughs> and what happened to the 450 yeah, I... million? It just, it, that's where it went. So yeah. Okay, great. What, what are we doing? <laughs> I don't know, man. Like, it's just like it's so rich when they talk about uh, mm-hmm. the criminal activity on Bitcoin. I mean, it's just so rich coming from them. It's 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 pretty. You just have to laugh at the ridiculousness of it. Uh, really, <laughs> it's it's and, and then they keep their jobs right, and then they there's no accountability, and that's uh, coming from healthcare too. It's 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 like mm-hmm. if you if you're a doctor, let's say you're a surgeon, and you you mess up. You, you, you screw up uh, maybe you operate on the wrong knee well there's like severe consequences that happen Do you when have you something like to that. tell us samuel <laughs> and, and, yeah no if you're wrong there's severe consequences you might lose your license yeah. people don't trust you in in economics man in that world like you can be wrong you could be the paul krugman's of the world and just be wrong all the time mm-hmm. and there's zero accountability and it's the same thing with these central bankers who are completely wrong like look at the fed right now just completely wrong about inflation and yet these like fed economists are still coming out being like 
oh, but we think it's going to be like this. Like we should listen to anything they say when they've been completely wrong forever. The Fed track record is garbage. And, and it's just, it's such an interesting thing coming from healthcare, seeing the lack of accountability in, in economics in general, in the entire financial industry in general. Um, it's, it's kind of backwards in my mind. I have great hope for the game theory of Bitcoin. Uh, just <laughs> throwing a spanner into the wheels of the the IMF's like, disgusting machine. And I can see it would be like the, the perfect scenario would be one of these 44 nations that just met in El Salvador go begging to the IMF for a $250 million loan to build out a Bitcoin mining facility to help manage their power grid, so, so- to help manage the power, the intermittent power that is... Uh, you know, ruining the town from the original project that the IMF funded. <laughs> like that would be it's, the golden ticket. I don't see it happening. Like, so <laughs> do you remember uh, recently Argentina got a $45 billion loan and part of those terms and conditions mm-hmm. were they had to not promote cryptocurrency usage. And so the but IMF If the, the, IMF's, already, if the yeah. IMF's business is right in these loans and someone is there cap in hand, like, yeah, we need 300 mil, like, please, because we're going to build out a Bitcoin mining facility. They know the only way they can make money is by writing that loan and then holding these people accountable to paying back the interest. They're going to have to start yeah. either turning down writing these loans and fuck themselves yeah. or write the loans and fuck themselves. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's That's- what Bitcoin does. It's true. But, I, you know, just to be a steel man, I would say that. Mm-hmm after decades of, of piling on debt on these countries, the countries themselves have become so dependent on the IMF. So it's mm-hmm. almost like they don't have the uh, negotiating power here. Uh, they like, desperately need, you know, if they needed that 300 million, the IMF could just come back and be like, well, you're not going to get anything. And then it's like, okay, maybe we can pause. So like the IMF has built such a dependence on themselves through uh, their predatory loans over decades that like, I just, I don't know if any country really has that, that bargaining power, but uh, you know, you're right. Like at some point, I think we will hit that inflection point where the IMF will have to make a decision, which would be a a beautiful, beautiful thing to see. So I hope it comes true one day. Um, But I think that's probably farther down the road. Yeah. Yeah, but it's going to happen, plebs. It's going to happen. Yeah, it's going to happen, plebs. I I love part of your thread where you you even found in like the footnotes of one of these uh, articles that the IMF had been putting out about proof of work and whatever else. Uh, And there he is, your old mate Daniel Larimer as one of the (laughs) uh, consultants of the uh, of the piece. Uh, and steam it. Oh my God, steam it. I actually wrote, I'm going to have to dig that out. Back in my um, very early days, I wrote something about the adoption of cryptocurrency because that was what was going on in 16 or 17. I can't remember. And I posted it on steam it and I was thinking, yeah, I'm going to get all this steam and, you know, I'll be able to flip it for Bitcoin or something. It's just like, fuck, you know, like, there was so much scams going on back then. There's it, it, even more now. Yeah. But do you want to explain to the guys who um, who this character is? Yeah, Dan Laramere is like almost impressive how how good he is at scamming. <laughs> he just he jumps from scam to scam, 
Uh, I think it was like Steam it, um, maybe BitShares, but then EOS was his big one. Like EOS was the big one in 2017, uh, had a massive valuation and run up. And uh, he used dele- delegated proof of stake was his big thing. It's like better than proof of stake. It's delegated proof of stake. And so, um, <laughs> so hang on. <laughs> delegated proof of stake is when you actually choose the people you want to uh, stake the proof, so to speak. Well, no, yeah, no, it's hilarious because I would call the IMF a delegated proof of stake system. <laughs> like there's 190 member countries. And then they're like, well, how are we going to get stuff done? There's too many of us. So we're going to elect 24 people mm-hmm. to the executive. or I think it's called the executive. I forgot what the exactly term is, but it's just like validators in a delegated proof of stake system. So like, no wonder the IMF talks so highly about delegated proof of stakes. They're just like, wow, this is great. This is exactly what our system is. And um, we all know that it just leads to centralization and, and control from the 24 validators that are, uh, you know, gain power in the IMF the same way that uh, EOS is completely centralized today. Uh, but in the paper that you're mentioning, they talk about how delegated proof of stake is energy savings and, um, you know, but more decentralized than Bitcoin and uh, more secure than Bitcoin <laughs> and all these like great things that could happen from it. Uh, when in reality, we know that it's just the exact same thing as these uh, fiat organizations and what we already have. And there's nothing really exciting about that. And then, Sam, we move on to weapons of mass destruction. Yep. And yep. it's quoted here, uh, the IMF <laughs> explores how to regulate virtual assets. Right. So virtual assets mm-hmm. pose a significant threat to the integrity of the global financial system. Money laundering, terrorist financing, and the financing of the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. I mean, that escalated quickly. Like, what the fuck? I know, man. I, <laughs> I couldn't believe that when I read it. I, I, just, I just laughed out loud, I think, because it's just like the, the scary language that they use. It's just like they're literally trying to demonize these things. They literally fund nuclear weapons. <laughs> and I... And I looked into like, so I, I was like, okay, where are they even going? Because when you read these papers and I really recommend people read them, but when you read them, just go to the citations that they cite and, and click into them and then dig a little deeper and, or click a link that they have in them and follow where that goes. Because what you'll find is a lot of times that a, nobody does that. And I don't think they expect people to do that. And then B what they say in their paper and what the citation is that the theoretically backs that uh, you know statement, um, it's so off. It's so way off. So the weapons of mass destruction one, I clicked into the citation, which led me to another article, which led me to something else, which led me to something else, which led me to some like 400 page Department of Defense uh, like report, right? And it was about uh, North Korea and, and weapons of mass destruction. And there was nothing in there. There's literally nothing in there about virtual assets, about anything. Basically, what they, what they connected was that there was some hacks from Korean hackers uh, of, of cryptocurrency exchanges. And then the North Korean government is increasing their nuclear weapon uh, capacities and abilities. And they make the giant leap, leap thinking that those are connected, like these, these hackers 
all of those funds that the hackers got must be contributing to the to the uh, weapons of mass destruction that are being built in North Korea. That's like there's no connection <laughs> or direct link or direct evidence. And 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 then the weapons of mass destruction shows up in not one but two of these IMF papers about how they're being connected. But if nobody did the work that I did, which is dig into it a little bit deeper, everyone just believes it at face value. And they're like, oh my God, like this is terrible, right? This is, we have to stop these virtual assets. They're, <laughs> North Korea is using them for weapons of mass destruction. And this is what they do. Um, and, and really there's absolutely no direct connection between the two. It's, it's unbelievable. Like what the, the depths of ridiculousness these people will go to. And I wonder, mm -hmm. you know, you're right though, because if a normie sees that, uh, that's it. That that's the narrative planted in their head. Because to most people, did you see recently there was a lady giving uh, a speech um, about the IMF? It wasn't a speech, excuse me. It's just like a short video clip, and she's sitting there on a stool, and she's looking all kind of forlorn, and you know, she's like delivers this whole thing about how the IMF is here to help the, the, the poor countries. Uh, I can't remember the lady's name, um, but it's like any normie person, blue pill, whatever term you want to use, watching that, that's gold to them. They think, oh, yeah, this is amazing. The IMF, what a, what a wonderful institution. And and probably the lady that was delivering that message has been just completely blindsided by it herself as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and I bet they're. I don't know about that lady, but I bet she's from either from America or she's from some rich European Western country. Yeah, because you won't hear an Argent Argentinian or or somebody else uh, say that. I guarantee that there's still riots going on today in Argentina. And it seems like there's been IMF riots going on there for at least 20, 30 years, because anybody who lives in a country that's dealt with the IMF knows um, the, the problems that come from it and, and how much their country has, has been hurt by their, the IMF's quote unquote help. Um, and, and, it, and that's what the data shows too, right? And in terms mm -hmm. of their, their programs and how uh, you know, their economies actually shrink when they when they go into these IMF programs, their wealth inequality spikes, yep. um, the amount of poverty spikes, yep. um, starvation, uh, poor healthcare, um, overcrowding, uh, political unrest, all these kind of these terrible yep. things, and it's really it, it it goes back to when you when you study the IMF and you really the question that underlines everything is always is this incompetence or is this malicious. Like, is, mm -hmm. are they just so bad at their job that they're just doing the opposite of what their mission is? And they're just really, this, their policies are just garbage or do they have other intentions? Uh, and that's kind of where we get into the, the economic hitman stuff where the intentions mm -hmm. are actually to uh, push, um, you know, Western policies onto these countries as well as extract their resources and enrich foreign corporations at the expense of these, uh, you know, local communities, um, which, you know, I think both, I think it's probably a mixture of both, right? It's probably, it's probably good people at the IMF who actually believe in the mission. Uh, but either of them, even if they're incompetent or they're malicious, they both deserve a lot of criticism. 
mm-hmm. that's what kind of pisses me off is because I don't hear anything from anybody in, in, in government or talking about the IMF, talking about reforming the IMF. Um, there really hasn't been anything since two, two, 2000 uh, where there was a committee at the U.S. Senate that talked about reforming the IMF and the World Bank. There hasn't been anything since then. Um, and I haven't really seen any articles except one uh, like a month ago in The Guardian that was really critical of the IMF's um, surcharges. And um, it was really good to see because I was like, I just haven't seen any anything. And, and these countries and the poor people in these countries are really suffering at the expense of these organizations. So I think that's part of the reason why I, I like to write about them because nobody else is doing it. And, and just to kind of like round this out for people, um, like the, the, the whole circle here, what, they, they send in, um, or engineering companies will send in uh, economic, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Forecasters that will go in and convince the local politician that uh, if you were to build, for example, some kind of uh, new grid or power station on the edge of town, that would bring in X amount of uh, power that would change the, the, the landscape of the whole country that would give people reliable 24 hour uh, a day power blah 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 and this would scale over time they get sold on that idea they go to the imf for the loan the loan comes in but the idea is that economic forecaster then is very closely tied with the american engineering company that's going to come in and build that infrastructure out with the money from the imf and we'll leave again in like five or six years time leaving them with with the problem of yeah sure you might have you might have better power but that attracts more and more people into that city so now you get a huge overcrowding problem and a huge infrastructure problem that's why you go to places like jakarta for example which are just a complete and utter clusterfuck of people you know it's mm-hmm. uh, overpopulation is not a problem overcrowding is a problem and when we you know this fiat driven idea of metropolises and cities they just they just become a mess so these these cities just become almost unlivable anyway you got a huge overcrowding problem and now you've got this huge amount of debt that you have to keep servicing and the, the like the, the grid is not growing at the economic forecasters whim because it was all bullshit and finger in the air anyway yeah and i think that's uh you know when they open up uh their economies they open up the economies of jakarta let's just stick on that they'll open up the economies to these foreign corporations that'll come in and buy and build them. And like you said, they don't care. They have no personal attachment to this country. You know, it's not their country. So they, they don't care about the land. They destroy the land. They, they harm the environment, you know, usually when they're building them. Um, and then they don't really care about the people because now it's a, a, a foreign company running critical infrastructure for these people. And they'll just jack the energy prices up on them uh, without any care in the world, right? They're, it's like not, they're not a part of the, the community and they're not, a, it's not their culture. Um, and so you really leads to a lot of, um, you know, conf- conflict of interest and, and issues um, and where you basically give up the critical infrastructure to foreign investors uh, who don't care about it. And then a lot of, 
And then you talk about how the loans are made and, and you have to service that debt and the projects never bring back the revenue that they project it will. And so what did they do is they cut spending in areas like subsidies for food for the poor people. They cut spending for healthcare. They cut spending for education uh, to pay off the interest on this loan that this country was talked into from the IMF, uh, which enriched the foreign uh, corporations. And so it's, it's the poor people uh, who depend on these programs that are cut first uh, to pay the interest on these loans that are hurt the most from this. And then you think about what happens to a society when education's cut, when healthcare is cut, when food subsidies are cut. Well, riots happen, uh, political unrest happens. And then suddenly these people wake up and go, what happened to my country? Because all this happened above them. They had no idea what was happening in these meetings with the IMF and their government officials. They just say, wow, things have gotten really hard. Inflation's hitting hard. Prices are rising. My, my wages are being cut from these foreign corporations that came in here and took over you know, our jobs, our companies that, that like I worked at. Now I'm not making as, enough money. Uh, to get by. And so this happens everywhere, man. Every single uh, country that has dealt with the IMF in Africa, South America, Central America, it's the same playbook every time. And um, it pisses me off. I think it should piss a lot of people off. Makes me sick. So I, 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 I urge everybody to, who's listening to this, to read this book you know, new confessions of an economic hit man by, by John Perkins and read Sam's threads on, on the IMF. And we'll touch the, the BIS in a second as well. Uh, but before we get on, before we get onto those fuckers, let's, uh, let's close out with, um, CBDCs because, uh, you mentioned in this thread here, uh, that, well, a direct quote from the IMF, one of the IMF papers that you were studying, uh, some features of cash, including anonymity, make it attractive for illicit transactions. A CBDC could potentially reduce this problem. Yep. So like CBDCs, they... What annoys me about CBDCs is that, A, it just gives um, power, uh, too much power to, to these organizations. where they well, All the power, have... arguably. All the power, all the power. So all the, um, the power to implement monetary policy and to basically control what people do with their money. Um, you could just do that with a flip of a flip of a switch. So if you if you were buying something that the government thought wasn't you know useful, uh, they would have the power with a CBDC to just cut you off. If if they wanted to implement negative interest rates, um, they could just do that. Uh, extremely easily with a central bank digital currency. And one of the things that uh, upsets me about the design choices that are being made by the IMF and the Bank of International Settlements and the Federal Reserve is they always say that, well, we can't have privacy because uh, then we can't stop you know, money laundering and illicit activity. So they use this excuse to not have privacy in the CBDCs that they're trying to design uh, to stop illicit activity. Now, now the problem is that the current AML KYC policies that are meant to stop money laundering are completely uh, incompetent. Like they don't stop it at all. Uh, Dr. Ron Paul has done a lot of work on this, and I recommend people check out his work. 
Um, but it's it's impacted about 0.05% of crime since the AML policies have been implemented over decades. So it essentially does nothing. And so they're, they're justifying the lack of privacy in CBDCs um, to stop money laundering that they failed to stop for the entirety of their anti-money laundering programs. And that just really rubs me the wrong way. And it's, it seems, again, it seems disingenuous um, or incompetent, either one. Yeah. Um, and it's truly amazing that they're probably the number one offender of, of, of washing money through different countries into favorable companies hands uh, at the expense of as we were just explaining at the expense of the the people of that nation that, that's just pure laundering yeah most i mean most la laundering happens in banks right that's not even like a a controversial statement <laughs> um, all these banks are are fined like every year for for facilitating illicit activity and money laundering i, mean, I was talking about HS. this yeah. I was talking about this today with Safe. Uh, I was on a call with him and a bunch of other guys, and we're going through his big uh, Fiat Standard book together, and you know, delving into each different chapter. And we got a, we were on chapter two, talking about the way that Fiat is mined. Uh, and I asked him, "Have you ever gone down the rabbit hole of, say, J.P. Morgan Chase? I think they have an outstanding fine of ten billion. I think it'd be the the most ever paid. I'm sure it'll be settled out of court for way less." But all, you know, name a bank. One of them has paid at least one and a half billion in fines at some point over the last five to seven years. Where does that money go? Who are they cutting a check to? Because it doesn't go back to the people got that, that got fucked over. Like no one's getting their homes back. No one's getting like, you know, so where does it go? And I tried to find this out, Sam. I'm going to pass you the baton. Uh, the, the the rabbit holes I was led down were, you know, of course the SEC has to take some kind of cut because they were the uh, you know the, the knights in shining armor that came in and, and found the guilty criminals and and took them to court. Uh, a huge amount will go on the the legal fees, as as we all know. Uh, some will end up in a in a fund that is supposed to try and pay out. It, uh, do you remember? Do you know what it's called? Don't, but so some Oxley fund or something. Um, names escaping me right now. But then these other rabbit holes were leading just to U.S. Treasury, to the U.S. Treasury, to the U.S. That's Treasury. Kind of I was gonna say, yeah, it's like okay, so U.S. Treasury, but does, does the U.S. Treasury have a bank account? And because like it's not just like it's ending up in a vault in the White House, uh, you know, somewhere. Mm -hmm. So where does that go? It's still got to hit somebody's bank account. And then you go down to the rabbit hole of, yeah, well, that's a TGA account. I can't remember if that's the right acronym. Held at the Fed, of course. That's kind of what I thought it would just like siphon down to the Fed. That's so a it's great a whole question. Loop. I, so it's a whole loop. A whole if, you loop. Think about, if you think about the Cantillon effect, it's a Cantillon loop. Because the Fed will, you know, that they will buy the government bonds in the first place, print that money. That money gets disseminated down through the uh, the each of the the banks that then 
loan it out to their AAA, then their AA, then their triple B customers before it actually hits the, the man on the street. And then by the time it's hit the man on the street, so much criminality has been taking place that they all get fined. Then that money ends up going straight back to the Fed where it first started. But they're fractionally reserved like, all of that <laughs> shit. Yeah, it's, 10 times. It's like they, they benefit off the, the fiat fraud in the end too. It just like goes back to where it started. Yeah. That's, yeah, man. That's, that's crazy. I, I always liked the, the like perpetual banks, inflation actually. loop. <laughs> these banks just budget for the fines now. They basically just expect them. And it's just like a rounding error on their total profits. Right. So they don't even really care. I don't know how it works too with, um, like, for instance, my father owned, he owned some like gold fund or something. Mm-hmm. And JP Morgan was charged with, uh, you know, manipulating and spoofing metals that de- precious metals desks recently. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how it works, but he did, he got something in the mail where he got like 15 bucks and 38 cents or something. And it listed, you know, JP Morgan Chase and something like that. So, uh, you know, that's about the amount that you can expect, I think, from uh, these large banks screwing people over. Just it trickles down all the way down and then you get like 15 bucks. Oh, man, it's just anyway, BIS, which is the Bank of International <laughs> Settlements. Uh, yeah, because you kind of you, you close out towards the end and, uh, and it's like on CBDC development, uh, they write the IMF is collaborating with the BIS and all of a sudden you think, oh, man um the cpmi what was the cpmi um i oh mean what was the cpi it was, it's actually like a division of the is i mean i can't remember what that okay so that's that's just a, that's just a, an it's umbrella just like a, it's a committee yeah it's just like a right committee. okay um uh, i think it's like committee of i can't remember exactly yeah maybe i could come up with it just do a quick search. The uh, Committee on it, Payments and Market Infrastructure. So it's a, it's it's right. a literally a branch of the biz, but right. That's that's who they're working with. Who they um, want to um, help establish uh, relevant guidelines with them. All right, Sam, do you want to blow the lid on the biz, the BIS, our big old fat friend sitting there at the very top of the pile? Yeah. So the biz the biz is basically like the big eye in the sky. They're like Siron if people like lord of the rings uh they're like an international organization they're like a, a central bank for central banks so if you just think about you know the services that jp morgan uh gives regular people uh the biz kind of does that for central banks so they they provide banking services for them and short-term liquidity and credit and foreign currency exchange and gold swaps and other investment instruments and opportunities for these central banks to use. Now that's just one function. Uh, the other function is they, they're kind of like the top innovators of the central bankers. So they have an innovation hub in their headquarters where they come up with big ideas for where the financial system's going. And that's why they're really the leader of central bank digital currency research. It occurs at the bank of international settlements and the part of the reason why they are that innovation hub is because they're the world's largest database of uh, banking information and financial data. And so basically all these uh, commercial banks aggregate their data, give them to the local central banks, and then the central banks all send them to 
the Bank of International Settlements. And so the Bank of International Settlements puts out a lot of research because they have access to the most data. That's why they're the eye in the sky. And so they collect statistics on international banking activity and, and, and you know, sell that data for very handsome dividends. Um, and now they're becoming, basically, they, they're the eye in the sky that looks at the entire flows of international capital. And, and they are concerned with like cross-border payments and how the money flows. And their mission is to improve that, to improve accessibility, uh, to reduce the costs. And that's on their website. That's kind of what they're supposed to be doing. But really, they're really focused on CBDCs because I think they actually think CBDCs can bring a lot of benefits to that. I think they, they think that it could provide cheaper cross-border payments, uh, make it more efficient to... Uh, distribute like monetary policy and, and do all these great things, but they never talk about the negatives, which are, you know, everyone's privacy being gone and being at the the whims of these international organizations in terms of, uh, you know, cutting them off from the banking system or censorship and all these negative consequences that could happen from CBDCs. So that's kind of the biz's role in all this. They're kind of like, in a way, they are the head honcho because um, they have all the data and all the research and, and a lot of these central banks listen to what they say. And I remember reading your thread on this as well. They're pretty untouchable, right? They're, they're based in Switzerland where they they like they regulate themselves sort of thing. They're, they're, there's, they're, they're answerable to, to none. Yeah, they're, they're protected by international treaties. So um, that's kind of my thing with them is, is these people are all creating these plans for a CBDC and nobody voted for them. And there's zero accountability. Uh, there's literally nobody above them telling them what to do or, or watching them or saying like, that's wrong. It's all happening behind closed doors. And since they're protected by international treaty, their headquarters are stationed in, in Switzerland, but the Swiss have no authority over the biz, over the uh, workers of the biz, and they can't even enter their premises. And so their assets can't be seized. Um, their employees and the biz are completely exempt from paying taxes. Um, and so they're, they're basically immune um, from any kind of law. And they're beyond the reach of national or international law. And they just have these extraordinary legal privileges that extend to the biz's bankers. So these diplomats, they're treated like UN diplomats, essentially. And so while they're in the act of working, which as a central banker, I mean, you could be working all the time, just sitting at your computer. Uh, you can't be touched. You're pretty much untouchable from a legal perspective. And so very privileged, very legally protected bank. Is CBDCs inevitable at this point? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Uh, there's like 86% of central banks currently hmm. running experiments. Um, I mean, it's, it's inevitable. That's why we're in this uh, fork in the road or we're approaching this fork in the road where it's central bank digital currencies versus freedom money versus Bitcoin. Would you rather have a money that's controlled by these uh, international financial institutions that have are unelected, you don't even know who they are, uh, with complete surveillance and censorship and, and no rights to the individual or would you rather have money in Bitcoin where nobody can control it and it completely levels the playing field? And so I think there's that meme and 
I think it really captures that. And yeah, I think CBDCs are very inevitable. I think they're just, they're coming. Um, and we just have to keep building an alternative to that. <laughs> what do you think the, the timeline is? Do you think that they're speeding it up because how does I'm still trying to, you know, I had laser hodl on the show and he was trying to piece all this together and he, he was unsure as to, you know, what came first? Like what was their kind of game plan turned upside down with this lab leak that, you know, could have got in the wave. What was this? Should it have been the CBDC's turn now and then, like uh, some kind of pandemic later down the line to you know nail the deal. Um, mm. Do you know what I mean? I, uh, it, it, yeah, yeah. I per- personally, I, I think um, when you think about a CBDC and how it could work, it seems like a prerequisite of a CBDC would be the need for a global digital ID system, um, or else it won't really work. Mm-hmm. So. You know, you see this weird push during the pandemic for digital ID from from the World Health Organization. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is actually in the UN's plans, 2030 plans to implement a digital ID system. Um, so whether one needs to be done before the other, I, I personally think a digital ID system or getting people used to that idea um, needs to be a prerequisite before implementing a CBDC. So I do think there is some uh, connections there. Uh, it gets kind of tinfoil hatty, but- um, It's fun to think it, about. Yeah, it doesn't really make sense. So like if, if there wasn't, everyone wasn't on a digital ID system, you'd basically have these silos um, where you'd have different, different digital ID systems for each local jurisdiction with their own CBDCs which really would negate the purpose for having a CBDC because like I said, the, the biz and everyone's really excited about it because of all the efficiencies that it could gain of, of mm. cross-border payments because this has been a problem for a long time is expensive cross-border payments. And so if everyone is on their own digital ID system and just siloed, uh, it really wouldn't really do much for, uh, good f- for anybody. Um, and so that's, that's kind of my, my take on that is that it does seem like there is a need uh, to get people used to the idea of having their you know, private information and, and identification on a state-sponsored uh, ID system, digital ID system. Yeah, we, I mean, it, the demographic thing as well, right? We, we were talking about this just, but you use the demographic book to, to prop up your microphone there. Is it too early for them to push this because there are still so many boomers uh, around who are just going to be very slow uh, with the uptake of you know, digital CBDCs on their phone when they're so used to their dollars or their pounds or their euro? Uh, I-, I can imagine my parents getting to grips with the fact that, oh, yeah, now the pound doesn't exist and your money all exists on your phone. But that yeah. just got an iPhone like last year. Like now, what now you're asking him to like to give up? Like, 
75 years of what he's known like no yeah that's a great point just like the hurdles there just for the older generations to even adopt new technology is always harder another thing with the demographics too is older older individuals seem to understand more about like how this could infringe on on people's rights um or privacy they seem to be more concerned about that because they just have longer experience and uh, especially even the older generations right who have actually lived through some of these things whereas younger my generation and the younger generations they they don't seem to think through these things they don't understand why uh this could be a bad thing they're just like oh it's on my phone now and they just like accept it and and that could be a, another part of the demographics puzzle besides just um not being able to use the technology is they actually think through like why cash is important for instance and why why this might not be good for for people's privacies and rights yeah it's an interesting one well i hope it takes far longer than they than they're expecting because they're they're truly (laughs) frightening they're They're not very good at tech though you know those those governments and central bankers (laughs) so maybe but maybe they'll take longer than than we think yeah Uh, and hopefully that we've got a few bitcoiners on the inside that can just keep throwing spanners in this work you know putting bugs in the code do whatever you can plebs you know slow this thing down the the thought of a of a a cbdc a central bank digital currency uh, on our phones is just so dystopian you fall very quickly into that social credit scoring system that they're running in China. Then all of a sudden they know exactly what you're buying. They know you exact, they, they, they will predict and track your carbon footprint and, uh, you know, penalize you, uh, at their whim. Yeah. And you're actually, I mean, you're, they're almost saying these parts out loud nowadays, mm-hmm. right? The out of the world, yeah. kind of, or Davos we'll know how this week. we'll know I what mean, you mean. Some of the things, yeah, yeah, some of the things are just crazy that they're saying out loud now. It's just like, can't really say this is a conspiracy when they're talking about <laughs> exactly what you just said at Davos. Um, and so that's why I get kind of upset with some Bitcoin critics because you see this future kind of barreling down on us of a CBDC. And quite frankly, I don't see anybody else trying to build anything that could be an alternative to it. Um, if you criticize Bitcoin, that's, you know, you know, you do you, but uh, what's your solution here? Is it just to succumb to these CBDCs? Because that's not a solution. And go um, vegan. And go vegan. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not feeding meat. But you're right. You know, a CBDC could basically turn money um I think it, uh, I read like an instrument of economic policy to a uh, instrument of social policy. And that's terrifying, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, if money could be weaponized uh, to implement social policy, especially when you consider in America how divisive um, we are as a society and trying to implement social policy from a top-down perspective, um, it would just be dystopian to say the least. Certainly would. All right, let's leave it on a positive note, Sam. <laughs> it's always a. These are if always you... heavy conversations. Have IMF and Biz. <laughs> just, of course, we're behind enemy lines. You know, Prince, yeah. we're behind enemy lines. You got to, you got to keep it real. You got to know what they're doing. Uh, what what yeah. was it? You you started off your your 
your thread with a with a quote along those lines. I should have read that. When you are thoroughly conversant with strategy, you will recognize the enemy's intentions and thus have many opportunities to win. We've got one opportunity to win, and it's the winning opportunity. It's Bitcoin. The only thing we got to do is help more and more people understand that and uh, get people, you know, merchant adoption uh, would be a, a huge stride yeah. forward uh, with, 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 you know, just having it out in people's faces every day. Uh, that's, that's all we can do. Mate, I'm going to ask you the, uh, the last question here. If you had yeah. one orange pill left to give to somebody, who would you give it to and why? Ooh, that's a good question. I might, hmm. I might say Joe Rogan and it's just, it's, it's more about getting our message out in front of outside the echo chamber and, and Joe Rogan obviously is, is the biggest podcast in the world. And, you know, I don't know if you've seen those recent charts about how many people tune into Joe Rogan compared to mainstream news mm -hmm. channels, but it's like, it's, it's astronomical how many more people tune into him. So if, if we could really orange pill him, like really orange pill him, like get safe on there. And, and he really understands this and starts uh, being a proponent of it to his audience. I mean, he might be able to orange pill more people uh, than any single individual. Uh, so it's not the most exciting answer, but I, I think that he would make a huge difference if he actually became uh, orange-pilled, orange-pilled, like really understood um, how Bitcoin could help uh, promote freedom. And so that'd probably be my answer. We'll get him. Come on, Joe. He's, he's, he's close. Yeah. He's very, very close. Uh, you know, uh, people have... Uh, you know, people that have been called out on this show before have ended up um, being gotten. Jordan Peterson, one one of one of those. You know, it it keeps happening that uh, yeah, these it's, these it's big the work names. of Bitcoiners. It is. It it truly. It's is. amazing, man. It's like podcasts like yours, and in 2017, I mean, the education it was there if you know where to look. But nowadays, man, we just have so many Bitcoiners putting out so much great content. I mean. Um, it's, that's what I'm most bullish on, bullish on Bitcoiners and, and education. There's some news about the merchant stuff too, uh, like open node and Stripe, uh, connecting, uh, this week. And then, uh, the coin Carter coin corner, um, yeah, the bolt card, the card, the bolt card, like those are like those, those are the kind of developments in bear markets that you need to yep. focus on like building and, and developing. Right. And so that's kind of setting the infrastructure for that next speculative wave that'll come in uh, that'll be bigger than the last one, but being able to handle it from an infrastructure standpoint and uh, yeah. just, I'm, I'm bullish, man. I'm, it's a bear market and I'm pretty freaking bullish right now. <laughs> and yeah, me too. And obviously Jack's announcement at the, the Bitcoin conference, talking about all the merchants that he's working with. Yeah. Uh, the Ibex Mercado guys, I just had uh, Jose on the, on the show. He was talking about the work that they are doing um madeira andre lohar in madeira i was on a call with him and danny scott yesterday from coin corner and danny's going to send over some um, point of sale machines and some bolt cards so they can go guerrilla marketing around like the local 
uh, area and into the shops and, and just try and help people understand. Like just have this point of sale machine on your counter because if anybody comes in with a card that looks like this and wants to pay for Bitcoin, then you're good. You're set up. You can receive it. You can always change it into euro if you want, but you're there. You have you can offer that as a service to a customer that wants to pay in Bitcoin, and that is starting to change the way that people are thinking. Uh, so yeah, then yeah, on Bitcoiners, I agree completely. I agree completely. I mean, as much as we like like this conversation was about the problems and these organizations that are coming down. I think it's very important to understand what they're doing, but on the other side of it, uh, we're building and, um, we're setting up the stage to when the choice becomes apparent for a lot of the normies out there about what we've been trying to, you know, pound the table about for a long time about these CBDCs, it'll be the work of Bitcoiners, um, who are building this, these tools and these services and these products um, that will allow them to jump into the life raft, you know, and, and that's, that's why I'm just so bullish right now because the tools are so cool that are coming out. I think I played around with that proof of sale thing at Bitcoin 2022. And yeah. I was just like, this thing's, this thing's freaking cool, dude. Yeah. So, it was amazing. Um, yeah. Super. I'm like I said, super bullish, super bullish and um, bullish on Bitcoiners bullish on bitcoin all right man love it where can people uh, follow you and reach out if they want to get in touch yeah so i'm on, I'm on twitter it's where i share a lot of um my analysis work uh at sam calla s-a-m-c-a-l-l-a-h and then um i write a lot of work for for swan so i work at swan which is a, a bitcoin brokerage and financial services company um we service internationally so um, check us out, swan.com. Uh, I think we provide really good uh, service and and we're Bitcoiners. So if you want to support a Bitcoin company, um, but I write stuff on the blog there as well. And I, so you can check out the blog and then I write a monthly insight report for our private clients. And so if you're interested in just checking that out, you know, DM me on Twitter and I'll send you the last issue of that monthly report that we put out every month to get you an idea of what our Swan private um, clients get. So that's where you can check me out. Cool, man. What have you got planned for the rest of the day? Um, I got some work to do. I got, I got some writing to do. I'm digging into, uh, um, I'm digging into, uh, shit coins. (laughs) 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 I'm I'm like, uh, you know, when they're down, you, you, it's, you gotta just point out the differences between Bitcoin and shit coins as these, uh, investors are really deep in the red wondering, you know, is this a good investment? <laughs> I'm basically going to compare like uh, how they perform against Bitcoin over the long term. So crunching some numbers, crunching some data. Uh, that's what I'll be doing the rest of the day. All right. I look forward to it, man. Yeah, man. Well, thank thanks you so much. On. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for coming on, brother. Take care. Have a good yeah. one. Yeah. Thanks, Brenty. Have a good one, man. Hey guys, hope you enjoyed that rip with your boy, Sam Callahan, who's doing some incredible deep dives into these kind of topics. If you've not seen the thread he did about the the BIS, I definitely recommend that you go back and find that. Just uh, scroll through his Twitter feed and then go and listen to uh, his show that he did with Stefan as well, Stefan Navarro on his uh, podcast, because it's uh, a great episode. Sam, you're doing great work, man. Thank you so much. It's great to have you on our side. Brilliant that you managed to uh, uh, escape your your ex-fiat uh, lifestyle and uh, now 
helping the Bitcoiners and helping the plebs understand exactly what's going on out there. If you want to reach out to Sam, you know where to find him. He's on Twitter. His Twitter profile will be in the title of this show. Thank you, as always, guys, for listening. Really appreciate everything that you are doing out there to help push Bitcoin education in your own way, whatever that might be. Even if it's just sharing a podcast or two with your friends, I know you're pissing your friends and family off. Keep going. Like, you've got truth on your side. So, you know, don't give up. One day, one day, it will come back to you, I promise. Uh, keep, um, yeah, keep pushing. Keep keep connecting. Uh, if you want to check out my book, that's called Choose Life. You can find that on Amazon. Hopefully, I'll be putting that on Consensus Network too very soon. And it is being translated by Monstera Books. Andre Lohar is translating that into Portuguese. Uh, so that's very exciting news. Um, what else to say? Support your plebs, guys. You know, there's there's a lot of people doing work out there. Unsung heroes. I'll chill a few. Play Shamory. They're doing great work. Scott and Mallory have been on the show to talk about their projects. You may have seen them in Miami. They're um, pushing out education for kids. Max over at the Bit by Bit pod has started up a merch store where you can go and get some very cool clothing. Uh, go check that out. Uh, Max is doing great work with his own podcast. Consensus Network, like I've already mentioned. Hit these links in the show notes. You can go and uh, check them out. Get to a conference. I'll be heading across to Latvia, Riga, where I'm going to be hosting a special interview there on a Saturday afternoon. I'm very much looking forward to that. That's the Baltic Honey Badger Conference, uh, the 3rd of September, that weekend. Uh, there's another one in France the weekend before that, Biarritz, surfing Bitcoin. Then, of course, in Prague, Liberty in Our Lifetime, 21st to 23rd of October. All across the U.S., you can get to um, uh, BitcoinDay.io. I almost forgot. Sorry, guys. But they are also doing great work as well. In-person meetups. Brilliant. And then hit up the usual guys. Swan Bitcoin. You know where to go find them. Relay across Europe. Bitcoin Reserve as well across Europe. Coin Corner doing amazing work. We've got a, an episode coming soon with Danny. And Stack Safe with Shift Crypto. Use a damn hardware wallet do your own research but i can guarantee you you will love the bitbox 02 bitcoin only edition stack safe catch you on the next show guys thanks for listening